Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Anders interviews Dr. Marcus Gieseler about the role of AI in customer experience. It's a pleasure. I, I have a fantastic guest, uh, Marcus Gieseler, and we will do a brief podcast on his recent work on AI and customer experience. But Marcus, can you please introduce yourself first so we will get to know you a bit more? Thank you, Anders. Um, my name is Marcus Giesler. I'm an associate professor of marketing at uh, the Schulich School of Business. I'm also one of the current editors at the Journal of uh, Consumer Research. And my research focuses on market creation and customer experience design. Fantastic. I'm, I'm really glad that we can have you online here. Um, but Marcus, can, can you tell me a bit more what you think customer experience is? Because I know it's a bit difficult to grasp. So customer experience to me is focusing really, you know, explicitly and with great attention to detail on what it is that drives consumer decision making and our behavior as consumers in the marketplace. And I will tell you why I think this matters so much for companies these days. Um, I remember that maybe some 40 or 50 years ago when you went into the supermarket and you wanted to buy some beer, you would have maybe five or 10 different beer brands on the shelf. Today, you're confronted maybe with 40 to 80 different beer brands. So there is an urge for companies to differentiate, to really kind of, you know, excel competitively relative to all the other companies that are out there. Now, how can you do this? Traditionally, marketers have been able to answer this question by saying, oh, we have this model, it's called the four P's, right? Product, place, price, and promotion. And by focusing on those four P's, I think we can help companies differentiate their brands and their products and services from the comp competition. But I think, you know, customer experience to me is the next step. It enables companies to competitively differentiate beyond what traditional marketing and consumer research would enable them to do. And what is it that enables them to do that? It's, you know, this dedicated focus on what it is that drives how we experience brands, products, and services, and what attracts us to some, you know, offerings more than to others. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I noticed you said attention to detail. Uh, can, can you talk a bit more about that? Sure. I'm a consumer sociologist by training, so I'm kind of used to kind of following consumers in the marketplace, you know, by observing them, by interviewing them, by looking at, you know, what, what they, it is they're up to, by participating in their group rituals. And this is what I mean by attention to detail. You know, it pays off for companies to really pay close attention to what consumers are doing, often beyond what they would share with us, um, let's say, in the context of a focus group or a survey. And this kind of you know, detail focus on, on consumer behavior is, I think, one of the most important keys to really understanding what drives consumer decision-making, what drives consumers to have these really strong and enduring emotional bonds with certain products and brands. And that's what I'm doing for a living. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Uh, uh, I've also done some research on, on detail and, 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 uh, what companies tend to do really well are the big things, the, the sort of major steps, but they usually fail when it comes to small details that actually make or break things. Uh, so I really like that approach. I agree. 
Uh, you're also one of the articles uh, that you have recent pu recently published is on AI. Can, can you tell me a bit more what how you would define AI? So I define artificial intelligence as algorithms and technology that is being used in products and services for the purpose of helping consumers solve a particular problem. That might be a very sort of simple utilitarian problem, such as what's the weather today, but it might also be a more complex social problem, such as how can I be less isolated, less alone during the pandemic? And so artificial intelligence as in algorithms and technological sort of, you know, innovations that are built into products and services help accomplish that. So in, in terms of, of uh, the experience, how would AI, if you have any example, how, how would AI help, help you in, in uh, achieving a better experience? Or Right. It's really surprising to see that AI algorithms and, and technology are in pretty much every product and service that we as consumers interact with on a daily basis. I just started my day here in Toronto. And just to give you an example, the first thing that I did was I checked my, uh, my Instagram on my iPhone. So immediately I'm interacting with an algorithm that presents to me what that algorithm believes it is that I would like to see. In my case, it's a lot of rabbits because I'm into little pets and rabbits. And, you know, this is one of those things that um, Instagram's algorithm does for me and knows about me. So there's an interaction and a certain intimacy between Instagram and myself already based on the fact that there are these algorithms that help structure my decisions and what I can or cannot do as a consumer. But let's <clears throat> continue on. The next thing that I did was ask my Google Home for the weather. So I have this little so-called smart assistant or smart home assistant. And I just, uh, every morning, I ask it for the weather, ask it for the news. So again, you know, the artificial intelligence makes choices on my behalf. It picks a news station. It picks weather information. So again, I help sort of structure my life around some decision authority that I'm deferring to a technology. And that's the fascinating but also scary aspect of artificial intelligence, that increasingly a lot of what, what we do in the marketplace as consumers is in some sense driven, shaped, and constrained by artificial intelligence and by algorithms. Now, we know that algorithms aren't objectively amazing. You know, they come with their own biases, their own disadvantages, their own risks. And all of these things, uh, consumers sort of experience while they're interacting with a particular technology or artificial intelligence. So for us, for this project that you mentioned, for the paper that we recently published in the Journal of Marketing, it was very important to understand what are some of the benefits that consumers experience, but also what are some of the unintended consequences that come with AI consumption and how can companies address those? So can you tell me a bit more about the pros and cons uh, of using AI as a, uh, from a customer perspective? Sure. So consumers increasingly allow these smart home assistants that I already mentioned to be in their homes, to have a seat at the family table, you know, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Apple Siri. Now think about what that really means in terms of the amount of really kind of intimate data that we're sharing with companies such as Google, Apple, or Amazon. So when you think about how much data Amazon or Apple are sort of like getting from me by simply interacting with these technologies, 
uh, on a daily basis. And this raises the question of what kind of consumer privacy policies or frameworks are we going to sort of build into these products in a manner that obviously help consumers have a better experience with the technology, but also in a manner that protects their privacy because these companies, especially Google, um, love data. They are fueled on data. And uh, that's something that uh, sociologist Shoshana Zuboff has called surveillance capitalism. This idea that we, as an economic sort of like model, have moved away from, you know, traditional definitions of value to definitions of value that revolve, you know, squarely around data and information that we have about people. So how can we deal with this? And how can companies negotiate that in a manner that, you know, optimizes the customer experience while at the same time ensuring consumer privacy so yeah um we we also read that ai is creating biases so do you, do you have any thoughts on that uh yes i do i mean <clears throat> one school of thought says that artificial intelligence you know aka algorithms that's essentially a form of mathematics and like all forms of mathematics Algorithms are objective. They're true. They are just, you know, very accurate representation of reality. Turns out they're not, you know, algorithms carry the same biases that human decision makers carry. And I think it makes a lot of sense when thinking about who is behind the programming of these algorithms. If you look inside the organization, you will find that there are software engineers, regular engineers, programmers, IT experts, and so they go about the craft of creating really captivating AI experience, often without realizing their own biases, their own preferences get sort of invariably baked into the algorithm. And a great example for how this <clears throat> then leads to sort of discriminatory outcomes is if you think about colleges, you know, a lot of universities and colleges, particularly in North America, are now beginning to pre-screen applicants based on a particular algorithm. So rather than having 10 people in the admissions office that are looking through the applications, it's an algorithm that kind of makes certain decisions on who we deem uh, to be appropriate for admission and whom we, we deem inappropriate. And these algorithms are supposedly objective, but in actuality, they have the potential to perpetuate extant biases, biases that might have to do with how these algorithms were programmed. And so down the line, think about the implications that this might have in terms of privileging certain groups of consumers over others. And then in the end, you know, creating a very uneven sort of, you know, set of, of students that make it into a particular college or university. And that's not something we should want, because as a society, I think access to education is something that needs to be fair and equitable. And so for that reason, we always have to look into what it is that these algorithms do, and maybe what they do to discriminate, not just help us solve problems. I have uh, some friends that are working with AI in medicine, and, and uh, they're saying if they used AI too much, it would actually kill uh, their patients. And, and that's because they're sort of strengthening some of the behaviors that, that uh, has sort of led them to have a, a bad health style or, or bad, bad behavior in terms of eating or, or not exercising. Uh, a very interesting example, and I think I, I agree with, with that articulation. I think it has to do with the fact that algorithms are related to machine learning, and machine learning means that machines 
are at the beginning probably not very smart. So they have to learn at first in order to make informed decisions. And so this learning process isn't a process that takes place in an objective kind of vacuum, right? There are biases that come in, there are preferences that the company might have or other institutional actors that are involved in shaping a particular, let's say, nutrition app or fitness app or heart disease app that we now give to patients that have heart conditions to help them address their, their heart condition. And so the learning, it's in the learning process that these biases are brought on board. And our recommendation in the paper is that both policymakers as well as innovators, you know, the companies that are actually bringing these, these um, apps and these um, AI-based um, solutions into the market need to be very careful around what kind of unintended consequences and biases their algorithms might have. Uh, so, Marcus, uh, in the paper, the JM paper, uh, which I like a lot, uh, which, of course, we, we have included in the syllabus, um, you, you talk about capture, classification, delegation, and social uh, in terms of, of various phases of AI. Can, can you help me understand those terms a bit more? Well, first of all, thank you for including our paper in your reading list for your course. That, uh, that is really awesome. Uh, and to answer your question, when the author team and I came together, so that's Stefano Pontoni, Rebecca Ratchek, um, Simona Body, and myself, the first question we ask ourselves is, okay, so if we want to sort of better understand the consumer experience around artificial intelligence, then we need to break it down. We need to understand what really are the sort of like sub-experiences, if you will, what more specific experiences can we think about based on what it is that the, that the technology does. So we looked into, you know, a lot of literature around what other people had written about artificial intelligence. And uh, we did this more from a sort of like technological perspective um, to decipher what key attributes there are or key capabilities, as we call them, that artificial intelligence has. And so after doing that, which was a lot of work, as you might imagine, we found that there are these four distinct um, capabilities that artificial intelligence has. So AI is very good at listening, you know, at collecting data and sort of gathering information. It's very good at making predictions um, about certain outcomes, such as the weather, the traffic, the music playlist, what I may or may not want to see uh, on Instagram. And it's very good at producing, and by that we mean producing value, you know, things that in the past used to be done by human beings are increasingly now being taken care of by machines and robots. So automation and the production of value outcomes, that's another key capability that AI has. And lastly, um, AI is very good at interacting, you know, fostering social interactions. I sometimes during the pandemic spent a lot of time talking to my Google Home because I was alone in the house. I had no one to kind of socially interact with. So AI became my interaction, my social interaction partner. So taking together these four key capabilities, listening, predicting, producing, and interacting, together kind of constitute what we believe is a full-fledged AI experience. And so the, the challenge here is each of those experiences needs to be properly understood. You know, there are sort of data capture experiences that come from AI's ability to listen. There are classification experiences that consumers have coming out of AI's uh, ability to make predictions. There are so-called delegation experiences coming out of AI's capability of 
sort of producing value and, you know, and us delegating sort of tasks onto the AI. And then lastly, there are social experiences based on AI's capability of interacting. So these, these are kind of the four experiences that we focus on in this paper. And importantly, there might be other experiences that we call uncharted experiences. But as far as we can tell, based on where the technology stands right now, they're not full-blown yet and they're not fully understood or developed. So for this reason, we believe that for the time being, at least, these four experiences are, are enough to focus on. I'm sort of struggling sometimes when, when I, you know, the, we, we live in a big data world. We, we, everything that, that can be connected will be connected and, and, and all of that. But uh, it means that we will collect tons of data. But how, how do we actually know what makes, what's important when we, I mean, in, in you, you have your capture phase. How do we know that we have caught something that's important or not important? You mean as an organization or as a company? As anything. I mean, uh, yes, you, you and I have some certain interest in common. We, we like small animals, but, but uh, how, how do we know that, uh, that uh, it's that that we're looking at or that's, uh, that sort of, that, that, that's what we're interested in? How, how do we actually sort of, how, how can AI know that, that uh, in the capture phase, what is important? Right, that's a great question. I mean, one of the basic assumptions behind machine learning is that the way in which we sort of learn about certain decisions and preferences that consumers might have or make is that we need to collect as much data as we can. And then we're looking for patterns in the data. And that's also one of the reasons why certain companies such as Google or Amazon are so interested in our data. You know, everything we do gets recorded and tracked and, and monitored by these companies. I sometimes um, take my students to their own uh, sort of Google profile and most students uh, and myself included had no idea how much data Google actually records about everything that I do and am. Uh, and the, the basic assumption behind this is, well, if we really want to understand the consumer, we need to know as much as possible about them. Plus, the second assumption here is that, you know, knowing about the consumer, knowing about Marcus Giesler, let's say, as one example, is a value that we can trade on markets. So for companies such as Google, as they sort of interact with other companies, maybe my credit card company, maybe my insurance company, maybe my supermarket, you know, these kinds of informations and data points that companies have about me become tradable units. And so it's a, it's a sort of like a twin concern. On the one hand, marketing tells us we need to know as much about consumers as we can. On the other hand, knowing about the consumer is a value in and of itself. And so that opens the floodgates, I think, for companies to collect as much data as they possibly can about us, often, often not really properly recognizing the privacy implications that they, might, that they might raise through this. So you think we, in the future we will sell the data to companies instead? Or? Well, there are some people who have argued that maybe you know, consumers need to be owning their own data, meaning that we could, as individual consumers, uh, trade how much we are willing to share with companies and then these companies can bid competitively around uh, what it is uh, the, um, that, that we have on offer as individuals. You know, there's health data. I'm wearing an Apple Watch right now. I know your students can't see this, but this Apple Watch is, is uh, keeping track of my heart rate. 
Now, this heart rate throughout the day has some implications about my health. So if my insurance company knew about my heart rate, I think it would give them some uh, understanding around like how much they need to charge me in order to insure me. Um, now, clearly, as a consumer, I'm not interested in sharing that information with them for the time being, but I could imagine a scenario where sharing my heart rate data with my insurance company would be actually something that I'd be willing to put a price on so that I, as a consumer, can negotiate a price around this kind of data sharing and data capture. So for that reason, I think companies need to develop better policies for data sharing so that I, as a consumer, know and understand what it is that I'm actually sharing right here, right now. And then policymakers, you know, governments and government institutions that are interested in sort of navigating the space and making it as equitable and accessible as possible. And you do also think about the things that they can do to make, you know, equitable data sharing and ethical data sharing a priority for companies. I mean, uh, there's examples not on, on health data, maybe, but, but uh, in, in the UK, you have something called Insure the Box, where uh, you can, there, it, it's a certain insurance company that uh, if you allow them to have installed a box in your car uh, that actually register how you're driving, uh, you can lower your rate, your, your insurance rate by. Absolutely. That's a great example of how data capture then as an experience that we have as consumers, and by the way, this can be fun. So wearing a fitness watch or having that little box in your car and driving more carefully as, an out, as a consequence of that is a way to notch consumers to live more healthily and responsibly. Um, but it also can have unintended sort of data sharing consequences that then down the road lead to different experiences around, let's say, classification. One of the things I always love about my Instagram is that Instagram thinks I'm the bunny guy. I love little rabbits. And so it shows me all these rabbit posts. But there are days and there are times where I'm like, I wish Instagram could show me something else and not just bunnies. You know, what about my friends? I'm friends with so many people on Instagram. I never get to see their posts because Instagram's algorithm things believes that this is all I care about when in actuality, I care about much more. So I'm being pigeonholed here by the algorithm. I'm being kind of constrained to who I really am uh, uh, relative to who I really am by by the technology, and that that obviously is a problem. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the dog guy and uh, outdoor sceneries. So yeah, that's what I get. I I, I totally I, I totally get where, where you're coming from. Do Do you have any good? What 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 should we look for in in the future? What 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 should what's interesting questions that that uh, we should have answers to in, in the future? Well, if you read our paper, we have some like 30, 40 or 50 research questions that we end our paper with because we found that there are way more questions than answers at this stage in the game when it comes to consumer AI. Um, I personally do a number of follow-up projects right now that are trying to answer some or find answers to some of the questions. Um, and I just want to give you one example. We know now that there are all these different experiences around AI that consumers can have. But what we don't know yet is how consumers familiarize themselves with AI technology to the point where they take an AI device such as an Amazon Alexa or Google Home completely for granted. And so this is where I, as a consumer ethnographer, can help kind of study this a little bit by, you know, looking into people's homes and sort of interviewing people and, and their family and home context to better understand 
how did this Amazon Alexa end up on your, on your kitchen countertop? How did it end up on your nightstand? And why are you taking it so much for granted despite its known privacy and bias issues that we discussed in today's conversation, right? So, you know, understanding the process to which consumers normalize the presence of these AI devices, I think is an important follow-up question that I'm currently examining. There are many other questions. And, you know, as you know, Anders, you are doing work, many colleagues are doing work on, on this important frontier. It's one of those very kind of timely and relevant frontiers in marketing right now and in organizations more broadly. Um, on the more applied end, when it comes to consulting and advisory, uh, right now I'm working with an investment fund, a multi-billion dollar British investment fund that is trying to better understand, okay, if we make investments in other companies, how do we figure out what companies are taking artificial intelligence seriously and taking it seriously from a social sustainability point of view, right? So how should we rate and interpret a company's performance around consumer AI based on what criteria? Can you help us with that? So one of the sort of follow-up implications of our model is that not only do we now better understand the consumer AI experience, but we're beginning to understand the criteria that are involved in developing responsible technology, responsible AI, and what it is that companies can do to compete successfully on that level. Thank you so much. And, and uh, it's been great talking to you. And, and uh, I look, look forward and, 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 and talking more to you and, and, and also reading all your fantastic re research. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you for having me, Anders. And right back to you, big fan. And your students are very lucky to, to have you as their professor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're a big part of, of what we're doing so thank you so much oh thank you right back to you